Welcome to episode one of season three of Saltgrass. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome you to another season of Saltgrass. We have been very fortunate to have been awarded a grant from the Community Broadcasting Foundation, or the CBF, to keep going for another year. So huge thanks to those guys who do an amazing job of supporting community radio stations right across Australia and supporting content producers such as myself to make shows about what we are passionate about. In this instance, it's my interest in the people around me and what motivates each of them to get involved in the climate movement one way or another. I'm interested in the way that individuals contribute to a community and how that community is working slowly but surely to make change at a grassroots level. At the moment in Australia, as in many countries around the world, we have a federal government that is largely uninterested in taking the urgent steps needed to ensure that we have a safe climate in the future. Yet the measures our government have taken to protect and support Australians through the crisis that has been upon us over the last six months with COVID-19 shows that they are actually able to throw money at things when needed. They can listen to scientists and take advice from those who have done the research. If only they could do the same with the climate scientists. My name is Alison Hanley and I'm talking to you from a small town, Castlemaine, in central Victoria, Australia. I live, love and work here in a place that the local Aboriginal people, the Jajawarung, called Jara Country. Today's guest is Auntie Julie, a local Indigenous elder who has been a wonderful leader and caretaker of Indigenous culture around here for many decades. We will take a look at her life and what she's been doing to foster pride and continuation of culture in the young people around here, and also explore what the land or country means to Aboriginal people and how that is profoundly different to the Western way and how that difference is at the heart of the climate crisis. For those of you listening who are not from Australia, we use the words auntie and uncle not because they are related to us by blood, but as an honorific, a sign of respect for our Indigenous elders. As ever, I would like to pay my sincere respects to the Aboriginal elders, past, present and emerging, particularly the Jajawurrung, who have held and cared for this land here in central Victoria in ways it is hard for a Western-raised person to comprehend. Hopefully this interview with Auntie Julie McHale will help us begin to understand. Salt. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. So I might just start with you as a person. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your background and what brought you to this area? Okay, um, I was made in Tasmania. My mum had lived all her life here, as has did my grandparents and my great-grandparents. That's the, the white lineage. And um, mum went to Tassie to teach and met my dad, who's Aboriginal, Doug Oates. I was actually made in Tasmania, but my dad had had three children before he met mum. And all three of those children were taken by various authorities with, like, really no explanation, but we have to put it down to, like, stolen gen stuff. Yeah. So when my mum had learnt that and then 
discovered she was pregnant, she sort of panicked and wanted to come back here to Victoria so that the same thing didn't happen. So she came back and um, I was actually born in the Castellane Hospital, so I've lived here all my life. While mum and dad separated, won't go into all the details there, but dad wasn't a particularly nice person. He's passed over now, but... um, particularly when he was drinking, he wasn't. So they separated. He went back to Tassie. And mum never told me about my Aboriginal ancestry. It was a bit... Hmm. uh, I don't know that she was particularly embarrassed, but um, she didn't really want us to have much to do with anything to do with Dad. Long story short, down the track, went to Tassie, met Dad. He was a lot older by then, met uncles and auntie. Met next above brother, Gary, who unfortunately has now passed away as well. So is that one of the, his children that had been taken? Yeah, yeah. Well, Gary was probably a little bit lucky in that he was taken and put into a home. But then my dad's parents, Grandma Lil and Grandpa Roy, they went and got him out of the home. So he actually grew up with them. He was the one that actually sort of told me about our Aboriginal ancestry and showed me all, you know, like the family tree and all this sort of stuff. Then I spent a lot of time going backwards and forwards to Tassie, spending time with my dad and my brother and particularly an uncle well, um, as well, Uncle Max. But dad introduced me to, well, he lived in Hobart when I went over there, but his connections were right down in um, Crabtree Valley. And down at Ewanville, there's uh, an elders group of ladies and Dad introduced me to them. And um, so we went back up the top of Tassie, up near Devonport, because that's where my mob, the Trawalway, came from. And, yeah, I spent day down on the beach with them, learning how to make shell necklaces. How old were you at this point? About 16, 16, 17. Right. so you're still young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyway... Um, I sort of, I didn't tell people much in Castlemaine. Um, I grew up with Rick Nelson and like we were, were good mates all through our teens and that sort of stuff. Um, never, never an item, just really good mates. And <laughs> um, spent some time up at Bell Reynold where Uncle Brian had a share farm. So that's Rick's dad? Yes, yeah. And got to know Uncle Brian and Auntie Jeannie really well. And, yeah, so I guess Uncle Brian was a bit of a mentor for me. He taught me lots. And then when I got brave enough to tell people that I was Aboriginal, um, then, you know, like most of my friends were accepting of that. There are still some that won't talk to me, but, that you know, that's their loss. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Castlemaine back then, you know, like in the 80s was, you know, like fairly narrow-minded, nothing like it is today. Like Castlemaine's just brilliant now. I love it. It's (laughs) just all the different people that have come here. So anyway, became a teacher and... Started off teaching in Melbourne. Of course, during uni, absolutely nothing about um, Aboriginal people at all. Mm. Somebody asked me the other day, did you learn anything about any Indigenous cultures? And the only thing I can remember from when I went to, well, it wasn't uni then, it was the Bendigo College. 
the only thing I can remember was in a humanities lecture, the lecturer talked a little bit about the, and excuse me for using the word because I know a lot of people don't like the word anymore, but about the Eskimos. And all we learnt was that, you know, like they made igloos and hunted seals. So, and that was what we were expected to pass on to the kids, I guess. So, <laughs> And that was the only Indigenous culture from anywhere across the world that you really learned about. Anywhere across the world, absolutely. Wow. So then, as I said, became a teacher. I started off as an art teacher down at Coburg West. I've have always been fascinated by the Australian Aboriginal art styles because there's so many different ones. So sort of did a little bit of that there. And, and down there they were much more accepting, a lot a huge migrant population at the school. So it was very diverse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, you know, I like gradually worked my way back up to teaching here. When I was teaching at Guildford, because I was the head teacher there, I sort of got a little bit braver and started doing more and more Indigenous studies and had a lot of Aboriginal people come and work in the school. The parents out there were absolutely brilliant. The kids were gorgeous. I mean, there was one family that caused me some grief, but, you know, I'd prefer to forget about them. Then... Um, moved into the Camels Creek School and did a fair bit of stuff there. So is this in the 90s or the early 2000s? Yeah, up to, well, 1981, I was appointed to Alphonstone and then from there to Guildford, then from Guildford to Campbell's Creek. I was at Guildford for 12 years. Yeah, I just really enjoyed it out there. And then Campbell's Creek, I was there for... I think about five years. And then the Winters Flat School had started a community class. And so some of the parents sort of headhunted me to come and run the community class, which I did until I left teaching. So, you know, lots of um, Aboriginal studies all the way through, Aboriginal perspectives. I don't like the idea of doing, you know, like four weeks on Aborigines and then you've done Aborigines for the year. So you just can go back to doing your other stuff. I prefer to see Aboriginal perspectives in all subjects, definitely all subjects and across most topics. So I threw out a challenge a while ago to the teachers in Castlemaine, that if they could give me a topic that I couldn't put an Aboriginal perspective to, then I'd give them a <laughs> hundred bucks. And they're throwing wow. some doozies at me, but so far I've <laughs> succeeded. You haven't had to fork out no, any money yet? No, no, no money. I, you know, I throw out these challenges every now and again. I've told somebody if they could grow a quandong for me, I'd give them a thousand bucks. Wow. <laughs> But I've actually managed um, to grow two quandongs myself at the moment, touch water. Hope, yep. Hopefully they'll stay growing. But yeah, so. So tell us a little bit about what a quandong is. Uh, quandong's a tree. It's actually um, what they call hemiparasitic in that it has to have a host plant to grow, and but it doesn't kill the plant. They can grow together. So it's not a parasite. It's a hemiparasitic it's not really symbiotic because neither sort of help each other and it grows into a small tree apparently they used to grow all around here but now you'll find them sort of like when you get near to Swan Hill up to Mildura and then right up you know to Broken Hill and they're a little red fruit that's often called a native peach 
um, with a huge seed inside. So the the fruit itself is probably the size of a, I guess, a small lime. They're not very big and you don't get much for your buck because the seed <laughs> fills nearly the whole fruit. But, uh, you know, like the lucky thing about it is, is that the trees are usually absolutely covered with the fruit. So you can get a lot of fruit each season. And is the seed edible in any way? Do you know? Yeah, there's the seed has a really, really hard shell. Like a peach? Yeah, like a peach, but extremely round, like exactly like a ball um, with those sort of like dimples all over it, like a peach, and great for making jewellery with. But then if you crack that open, you've got like the little nut inside and you can eat the nut if it's roasted. But I find them a bit bitter, but maybe it depends on which time of year you get them because there's a lot of things that, you know, like, It can be just a matter of weeks and they go from bitter to sweet. Now, I had got us completely sidetracked by Kwandongs. Can we um, backtrack a little bit? And can you tell us a bit about the meeting place and how that started? Oh, while I was still teaching at Winters Flat, I actually went down to the skateboard park one night to catch up with some of the kids. And there were a couple of of the local mob were there and they were only like, 13, 14, and they were drinking, like drinking alcohol. And I was, like, really concerned about that. So I thought, you know, these kids are bored and they don't have a lot of cultural pride. A lot of them didn't even know much about their culture. So I thought, why not start up some, like, a program where we work just with Aboriginal kids. And um, Greg Neal, he is a white fella he worked for council, but he'd lived many years with the Inuit and the Cree over in Canada. So he was really switched on to Indigenous cultures and things like that. So I was teaching his daughter in the community class and we got yapping and he went about setting up a little, the little program called The Meeting Place. So that was one afternoon a week at the Fee Broadway and it was just really a a chance to get all the local Aboriginal kids together. I cut back my teaching hours so that I could do that and we got Justice Nelson, um, Rick's sister. She came and like some weaving and necklace making and that with the girls and Ron Murray who lives out at Frystown, he came and made uh, didgeridoos with, with the boys but it was a little bit like doing the shell necklaces. It's not really about what you're making. It's about the conversation that's going on while you're making the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and anyway, the, the money for that ran out. Then after I'd retired, Kath Butler from Chirp uh, approached me because she'd heard about it and she was worried that um, Chirp weren't, you know, didn't have um, a lot of Aboriginal people coming in for support and things like that. I'll just explain who CHIRP is because some listeners may not know. So CHIRP is a local health provider who offer counselling services and drug and alcohol assistance and all sorts of things to just help support some of the most vulnerable people in the community. Yeah, yeah, CHIRP was amazing. So Kath sought some funding, so we you know, revitalised the meeting place. We started off with the meeting place being at Winters Flat Primary School because another thing that I'm 
utterly obsessed with is um, bush tucker, the plants, not not so much the meat. So what we started off doing was we did cooking in the morning using bush tucker ingredients and then in the afternoon, Dion Brownfield, he lives locally, but he's the manager of the Indigenous Hip Hop Project. So he had, it was either him or one of the employees within that group would come up in the afternoon in the afternoons and do hip hop with the kids. So yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely brilliant for the kids. Because I was no longer a teacher, we had to employ a teacher because it was during school hours. And Sam Chapman, who now is the principal of Casamay North, she was one of the first registered teachers we employed part time. So because she was teaching at Winters Flat, but then she would come and. Uh, you know, like supervise the meeting place. And then we heard that the Yapin School was being used as a, a place for VCAL kids or the kids didn't fit very well in the mainstream at the secondary school. The Yapin School is like a 10-minute drive outside of Castlemaine towards Guildford. That's right, yep. Was it discontinued by that point? Was it an empty building? Yeah, um, it was still owned by the education department, but then enrolment had dropped so low that it was de-staffed by Basically, I think there were only two kids there in the end and they went into Campbell's Creek School. So the building was just sitting there. The high school took it on as like an alternate campus. So then, you know, we asked if we could use it once a fortnight. So we started um, doing that. Um, the council jumped on board and allowed us to use their the council buses with permission notes and all that palavery. The buses went around, picked the kids up and um, brought them out to Yapin for the day and then took them back to school. So I picked them up from school, then took them back to school. Now, while all this was happening, Catherine Coff's kids were coming to the meeting place and Catherine was usually at the meeting place. And behind the scenes, she was actually studying to be a teacher so that she could become the teacher at the meeting place. Yeah, <laughs> that great. was her whole aim in becoming a teacher. So so then she came on board. Cass has been the teacher, the employed teacher, out there now for probably about six years. Because our numbers increased so dramatically out there, there were at one stage we had, I think, about 46 children coming out. And even though... I was a teacher for 40 years. I wasn't recognised as a teacher anymore because I wasn't registered with VIT. We ended up getting a second teacher. So we now have two teachers work there when it's when it's running, which, of course, it's not at the moment. Yeah. Then a couple of years ago, because we found that we were sort of doing much more than just the meeting place and that sort of stuff, we decided to sort of ourselves an Aboriginal service and it was you know we weren't registered anywhere as an Aboriginal service it was you know just a small group of people and Catherine come up with the name Naldorun which means uh, working together now we have Naldorun you know like the Aboriginal component of that is Aunty Kerry um, Douglas, uh, Uncle Rick, uh, Catherine, myself and Melinda Harp is sort of like a um, She's actually not Aboriginal, but she's the mother of two Aboriginal children and has spent most of her life working with Aboriginal people. Like She's super switched on. So now, Nalderun do 
tons and tons of things. We've got Myrna Mummers, which is a catering service which employs Aboriginal women. And uses Indigenous plants and things as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, we use Indigenous plants. We also run bush tucker classes. We have a little stall at the farmer's market at the moment because we, we're obviously not getting any catering jobs at the moment yeah. because <laughs> nobody's having parties. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we've got lots of, other, lots of other bits and pieces up our sleeve just to keep us going. And it's not formal yet, but and I don't know whether I'm supposed to say it, yep. but um, I will anyway. We just received a grant, um, a very large grant, to create a bush tucker farm out here at Harcourt. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. A, um, Henry of Harcourt, or Michael Henry, who owns Henry of Harcourt, has donated us for like a, you know, like a, a lease, which we don't pay for. He's just sort of given us some land. <laughs> um, it's not our land. It will still be his land, yeah. but that's okay. Yeah. Seven acres up the back of his property, which is just at the base of uh, Lianganook or Mount Alexander. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful site. The the block itself um, is just covered with briar roses and mm. things like that. But yeah, we've just been notified that we have you know been successful in the grant applications. That is so exciting. It is ex- extremely exciting, Ali. I think it's a really great opportunity because we our plan is is to only employ Aboriginal people to work on the on the project. And, like, there's so many different levels, you know, ranging from, you know, the gardener who, you know, is responsible for all the plants and that to, you know, your bookkeepers, your managers and things like that. So Absolutely. And I guess if you're running market stalls and all of that sort of stuff, you might have. Definitely. And we uh, there'll be a small building on site and a large greenhouse. And so that could also be used to take people for tours, you know, like, to talk about the plants rather than me lugging my plants in their pots around everywhere because they're, they're just too big down. Yeah, yeah. So what's the time frame? Would you be able to get onto the land within the next couple of months and get cracking? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we have a youth leadership program which is run by some of our older Aboriginal kids, Maya Coff, Ben Reed, Dakota Nelson, and they're working to help some of our, like, teenage... And I, when I say our, I'm talking um, Castlemaine, Maribara and Gisborne. Yeah, right. That's a pretty big area. It is, it is. And they work with the, with the Aboriginal kids in those schools, just building up their leadership skills, their confidence and stuff like that. That is so great. And yeah, they ran a really, really successful camp towards the end of last year before all this other stuff hit. Before COVID came in. Yeah, yeah. I think there were about 40 kids attended it. I talked the coordinators, Koori coordinators, before they went over there and, you know, came up with a whole heap of ideas of things that they can do. But, yeah, it was a very, very successful camp. Then there's – we ran a homework centre for a while. Um, and that was that went really, really well, where yep. the kids would rock up after school. And um, if they had homework they needed to do, we would help them with that or we would create homework for them to do. So Just to boost their skills and confidence a bit with the schoolwork. Exactly, exactly, yeah. We did a lot of cooking, but not just using Indigenous ingredients. We, we travelled around the mm. world. That's great. Yeah, so they learned about the country, but they also learned about all sorts of different ingredients and that. And we tried to use stuff that 
they could get themselves from the supermarket and could cook at home. So, yeah, that, that went really well. But then, you know, like it, it started to die off, which often happens, particularly after school things, because kids like have to get there and then um, like we were running most of them home. So anyway, that money now is used to have tutors at the secondary college that are working with some of our kids up at the secondary college, particularly in maths and English. Then Catherine and Marty, he's our second teacher at the meeting place. Catherine and he go to the secondary school every Friday and catch up with the kids are looking at their needs. Is this more than academic? It's also about their social needs and their support in their lives. Because being a teenager is hard for anyone. Absolutely. But a lot of these kids have got additional challenges, don't they? Yes, yeah. But also um, keep in mind that, you know, some of our kids are like super, super switched on and super smart. Yeah. Um, so it's also helping those, not just working with the kids that are struggling, but working with the kids to sort of extend it more and working with the school to ensure that there's as much Aboriginal perspective in the curriculum up there as possible. Mm. And like I'm currently writing curriculum for the VCAL kids based on their outcomes, but I'm actually basing it around the um, Bush Tucker Garden because, or farm, because a few of them will be working up there. Yeah. Uh, we're just, we're doing stuff all the time. Like we've got La Trobe Uni at the moment where Myrna and Mummers are putting together like little packs with all the ingredients in them for a hundred of the students up there. Then we're going to be filmed making some food, working with the, some recipes that we provide. And then that will be Zoomed and the students from the Trobe can um, be at their home cooking like what we filmed because we've provided all the ingredients for them. So That's amazing. Yeah. That's so great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what I'd love to do, Julie, is maybe catch up with you in a couple of months once you've got sort of your feet on the ground at the new farm and we can have a chat, maybe get grab a couple of the other people involved and have yes. a chat. Yeah. As Auntie Julie has been describing, there are really so many wonderful things happening in the local Aboriginal community. I will feature some of these stories over the coming year. But if you're interested to hear more, then have a listen to a series I did with Uncle Rick Nelson back in 2015. We called it Jajawarang Radio and interviewed all sorts of people, from the kids at the meeting place to historians and the local Aboriginal community members. They were short 10-minute segments for a show on Main FM but I have edited them together in themes and uploaded them recently at saltgrass.podbean.com. So if you're interested, you can jump online and have a listen to them all there. All right, so let's change track a little bit. I came and visited the meeting place and chatted to a few people three or four years ago, and um, some of the stuff that you were doing with the kids was taking them out onto country and just telling the stories and helping them connect to the landscape and the plants and the animals and things like that. How important is that in in what you're teaching the kids? The country is, is culture. If you don't have country, you don't have culture. And country to us mob is much, much more than the, the physical things that are on the land. Country, in our belief, has been created um, during the dreaming our ancestors, they're embedded in country. So, you know, yeah, the, we've got the rocks and the trees and the plants and the animals and that sort of stuff. But 
it's much, much, much more than that. So they're still uh, effectively active in in the world. Oh yeah, yeah, Abs- oh, absolutely. And I think you'll find that this equates to pretty much any indigenous culture anywhere in the world, not just our mob here. So the elders sort of are responsible for being the custodians of country. Part of that responsibility is to share the teachings. And, you know, I hear the term dreamtime stories. I don't like that term. I prefer it to be the dreaming because dreamtime sort of signifies a specific time. And a lot of people think, you know, like it's when things were first created. And, yes, that is an important component of it. But the dreaming continues all the time. You know, the dreaming's going on today and will continue while they're, while we're still around. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I have actually myself always, when you hear about the Dreamtime stories, it sounds like, oh, yeah, that's from the deep, deep past. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's over. It's not current. Yeah. So that's, that's an amazing difference to think about. The dreaming is a current event and we're still in it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And um, I prefer the term teachings rather than stories. The true definition of stories is about the telling of stuff, and I understand that, but I think that there are Aboriginal teachings and there are Aboriginal stories, and there's like a difference between the two of them. Teachings are there to to teach the people about things. So usually there's two components to a teaching. One is how something was created or why it sits like it does in nature. And that's sort of probably the simplistic part, you know, like how the kangaroo got its tail, you know, that sort of stuff. But the much more important, I believe, and um, deeper component is how you live your life. So it's that moral component of the teachings that are important. So it's all based around how you live your life with knowledge of how something has been created. Then from the teachings, we've developed symbols, values, language, beliefs and understanding. And I'll duck back to language because language is extremely important and it's a little bit, well, it's heartbreaking actually that a lot of language was, well, I I don't want to say lost, was suppressed. So, for example, we're on Jara Jara country, the language is Jajawa Rung. So on this country, when we're sharing culture, if we were doing it the best way possible, we would be using Jajawa Rung language, but we can't. There's, I I know of three people that can speak Jajawa Rung and they're still recording the language, there will be, um, I know there's a dictionary that uh, a man called Don Tully from over the Denali Way put together. He's a white fella and a great guy and did a lot of research and a lot of what he has in his dictionary is extremely pertinent but not all of the words are right. Harley Denali Lee is a Jajarung person. He's actually studying linguistics at, I think it's Monash Udi, and he's the one that's sort of revitalising the language. I know lots of Jajarung words, as do a lot of people, you know, like the names of animals and stuff like that. But, but Harley's via research and also looking at 
the languages from other Victorian mobs and how they were, how they have been strung together. Like he can now talk in Jajarung. Mm, so it's about finding the patterns in the grammar and the the structure of the language. Exactly, which of course you know in every. Well, if every different language has different nuances, you know, like when you're putting it together. so I'm actually really encouraged to hear that there's even that much knowledge about the Jajarung language because I hadn't, I hadn't realised that there was that much of it left, that there are still three people who could speak it fluently and yep, yep. people actively working on it. Well, when I say fluently, I probably should say semi, semi-fluently, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. they're getting better because they're learning more as they go. The other one is, um, is Justice Nelson, Rick's younger sister. She's probably not as strong as Harley's in talking, but, yeah, listen to those two talk talking to each other and it's just amazing you know like said shivers up and down your spine and it's interesting to note of course I think we should make the point that what you said earlier was was true it's not been lost it's been actively suppressed and through history and colonization indigenous people were taken off their land they were take they were separated from each other and they were punished if they spoke their language so absolutely yeah yeah, it's it's not been a passive sort of drifting away of language it's been an active process of suppression oh no no definitely not definitely not (laughs) yeah Uh So then from those, I guess, the values, the understandings that come from the teachings, then we get to what a lot of people think is Aboriginal culture, which is like, you know, your visual arts, your song lines or your song, um, dance, games, music, mm-hmm. writing, that sort of stuff, which they're components of culture. But, like, I asked the kids at the meeting place, uh, I said, okay, you're all Aboriginal people and people are going to come and ask you, other people are going to come and ask you about your culture. So if someone comes up and asks you to tell them about your culture, what would you tell them about? And, of course, the kids came up with, you know, like, oh, well, the songs we've learned, the, the games, the art, and I said, well, you know, they're all correct but where where do we get those things from? So it's sort of like, a, a, I guess, a hierarchy. So all those things are about embedding the teachings. You know, like a lot of people know the teaching of Bunjil, the creator. And so from the teaching of Bunjil, we do the visual arts so that it's something that you see that reminds you, you know, like song is something that you hear. I find song is a really good way of embedding learning. And then there's the dance. Most people see, you know, people dancing around and think, oh, they're pretending to be emus and things like that. But it's mm. it's much more than that. It's embedding the understanding of culture. Into your actual body, into your muscles. Exactly, yeah. And then there's a whole range of games that are played that some of them are specifically to develop skills that were needed and that are still needed but some of them are about once again embedding that understanding of country even the food the music then we've got writing now uh, one thing that really irritates me is the definition of like if you want to separate prehistoric to ancient ancient cultures are cultures that have writing and a lot of people talk about the Egyptians being one of the first ancient, ancient cult- cultures mm. because of the hieroglyphs. But the symbols that we use, when because writing is just a series of symbols, so the symbols that Aboriginal people 
in Australia have used for tens of thousands, if not over 100,000 years, are symbols that have meaning. So they're, to me, they're writing. So if you want to talk about hieroglyphs, um, my mob in Tassie have petroglyphs, which are the same as hieroglyphs, but they're carved in the rocks. So, but Aboriginal people in Australia are often, well, are usually referred to as prehistoric. And I hate that term because it sounds like it means prehistory in that we don't have any history. Yeah, and, and even if you take the, the symbols and the, the marks out of the equation, there's still the oral history, which has been going for forever. Yes. <laughs> like as long as yes. humans have been yes. humans, there's been oral history. And it's a question of whether people are paying attention to that or not. It's not a question of whether or not it exists. That's right. Yes, exactly, Ellie, exactly. So then from all those, I guess what people see is the arts that are used to embed um, the understanding of country comes ceremony and you know like ceremony is extremely important um we hold a lot of ceremony out at yapin sometimes it doesn't look like ceremony we don't all sort of like dance around in a circle and things like that it's probably informal ceremony where we bring together all those different components that I just mentioned. And when you're talking about country, the biggest component of country is respect. That word is is a word that we constantly use at the meeting place. And the kids in their cleverness, you know, after talking and talking and talking, you know, I said to the kids, well, how can we put this stuff together to make it sound simple, you know, so that we can remember it? And the kids come up with, yo, you know how, um, like, you rap, rappers do the two fingers sticking up and they go yo yeah so the kids come up with that with the letters y-o-e and that means respect yourself respect others respect the environment wow and i mean i love that (laughs) it still sends shivers up my spine because you know we've talked about it so much just imagine if everybody in the world respected themselves respected others and respected the environment oh my god you know like how amazing would the world be? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so that's basically, is that helping to understand what country is? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's part of our soul. It's part of our being without country Aboriginal people. Well, and I think that goes for every single person. It's just whether you acknowledge it or not. That whole concept of country, where we live, how we interact with Um, the environment but also with each other because we are all Mm. part of country as well and uh, I don't know whether you've heard of a a man called Wanta his name's uh, Wanta Jumper Jimpa Pawa Kulupuluunu or Stephen Jumper Jimpa Patrick who has come to Castlemaine a few times he created a project he's a Walpuri person he created a, a project called Bilpuri uh Wigs of Change he is the most amazing person that really that I've ever met he talks about law L-A-W and L-O-R-E a ceremony and rituals and language and all that sort of stuff and he said if we don't adhere to those um, L-O-R-E-S's laws. <laughs> and this, he said this long before what's happening now, but he said the country and, and people will become sick. <laughs> it's sort of like, yep, wake up, uh, humans. Yeah. I don't care, care whether you're a denier or you're not. 
COVID is happening. And when you think about, you know, what's causing, what, you know, where they're saying that COVID originally came from, you know, the bats in the wet markets and things like that, that's all about disrespecting the animals. The animals and where they're supposed to be. Yes. And it also links to climate change too, I think, this global global just disregard for how we should be treating nature and the natural world, yeah. Well, I think it is interesting to look at how we live in the West and how different that is to how, you know, humanity has lived on the planet for hundreds of thousands of years. And the last 2,000 years, maybe four or 6,000 years is what we consider civilization. That is such a tiny amount of time. That's right, yeah. So we can, as a species, live without all of this stuff that we consider a human right or a necessity. Yes. We can live in so much more of a, a natural environment without all of this protection and all of this other stuff that we think we need to survive. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've got this idea that nature is against us and that we'll die if we're left exposed to nature, but we evolved in nature. We are we are creatures of nature. Yeah, well, when, um, when the... Um, the invaders first came to Australia, you know, like the comment was it was just pristine, it was just amazing, and then they proceeded to destroy it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yep. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and the idea that they had that the Aboriginal people of Australia were primitive and inferior, oh, like yeah. vastly inferior, yep. and and evolutionarily they were bound to die out because they were, you know, a throwback to some old type of humanity, yeah. is actually the exact opposite in a lot of ways, I think. It's, oh, exactly. <laughs> and I think, um, I think a lot of people are starting to realise that now. Like there's a lot of people that are speaking to and listening to Indigenous people. All around the world. To get guidance on, on how how can we fix things you know so yeah there's still you know like money is the biggest drama you know Mm. even with COVID you know like it's sort of COVID COVID versus economy you know and yeah you're right and it's and it is the environment versus the economy as well when we're talking about climate change and oh yeah yeah it's always oh the economy can't sustain we can't change the economy the economy and it's it's ridiculous because really all money is is a symbol of something that you can exchange for something else exactly. and humanity long before we had dollars and coins and notes or anything were bartering and exchanging well that's right you know like um the the trade line the you know the trade lines um throughout Australia and I guess everywhere else in the world are were just amazing so. Yeah, some it, there's stories of what, what ochres and things. I think from yep. Victoria traveling all the way up to the Northern Territory. That's right. and, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I wonder if there's anything else you could say to, I guess, what the climate crisis is, or how Indigenous people, or you know, you personally, are feeling about the climate crisis, or what? Climate crisis. I sort of, I'll take it back a little bit. There's the two things that I despise most are fences and dams. Because that removes the fact that we are the custodians of country. We don't own country. And, Mm. you know, as soon as you put a fence around something, that means that it's yours and nobody else is allowed to to use it. And the same with dams. Dams, um, and, you know, like I'm not a fool, Ali. I understand that we have to have reservoirs and things like that. But once again, that's because we're overpopulated. So... 
that once again is like I own this water and it gets back to that respect. Biggest thing that worries me is we're going to run out of water, fresh, clean water, because without it, we we won't survive. And while it's being used and the more money you've got, the more water you can use. And often it's the, the, one, the ones with, you know, like millions of dollars that are using the water that mm. are destroying the water because the water is um, not being used properly. It's being overused. So you get the, you know, you get the water in that. Then with in, you know, like industry and, and things like that, it's, it's creating, like we're such a throwaway um, society, you know, like most of these big um, factories and things like that, they're stuffing up the environment as well as that they're making things that are stuffing up the environment, you know. So <laughs> um, they're, you know, like I keep thinking if we keep selling, um, you know, like all the, the treasures, I'll call them, um, of the Australian country, if we keep selling this stuff overseas, what are we going to be left with? Just a big hole, you know? <laughs> yeah. What's happened with the mining companies in Western Australia recently is uh, uh-huh. exactly this point you're making uh-huh. of, and, and what you were saying about the, the value of the history of like this mark making that Indigenous people have been doing is, is in all those caves that Rio Tinto is yeah. collapsing so that they can mine for iron, so that they can export it, so that someone else can make stuff that we then buy back and then dispose of within a year or two. And what's that really worth? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, like there's even another site now that they're looking at using. And then, well, you get these ridiculous um, explanations of, oh, you know, we put the gelignite or whatever it was in the ground and then it was too dangerous to remove it. Shouldn't have put it in there in the first place and don't pretend that you didn't know it was a sacred site. And, you know, like it's sacred to us. These sites are sacred to us. They're not necessarily sacred to other people. But those people, like your Rio Tinto people, would have places that are sacred to them. And if everybody looked after their own sacred sites and didn't destroy them, there wouldn't be a whole heap of stuff being destroyed. <laughs> and I do think there's there's an embedded racism in what what is considered a sacred site. Like when Notre Dame burnt down, the whole world grieved. And that's, that's <laughs> yeah. only a, a, a pinprick in time compared yeah. to how long those caves have been there and what that means for... It's not just Aboriginal history that's getting blown up. It's human history. Exactly, exactly. Everyone on the planet should be concerned yep. about what's happening yep. there. Yeah. And, though, you know, the sacred sites are much more than just, you know, as we've been talking about, is, are, not, are much more than just a place in country where somebody's, you know, painted some pictures on the wall of a cave. If you spoke to the people who that site is sacred to, it's all those things that I talked about earlier. Mm. And it's it's about understanding where we fit in, you know, the whole picture of things. Yeah, there are too many of us that think that we, uh, you know, that we don't have to fit. We have to rule. We have to govern. We have to manipulate everything around us to suit us. So yeah, I I do feel like there's a there's a really fundamental difference there between the Aboriginal concept of being custodians of a land and being an integral, equal part of the landscape and all of the other creatures being equally important and mm. every element of it working in balance. Mm. And to this idea that 
this Western idea that you have to rule and control and that it's not to be trusted. You can't just let it do its thing. You have to control what it's doing because you know better than the land itself knows how to manage itself. Yeah. I think there's a really fundamental difference in perspective there that is yeah, there is. Yes. is at the heart of a lot of this. I agree totally in that. And I think that's what's, um, you know, leading towards, well, ultimately destruction unless we start changing our view of things mm. and the way we see country. We can't sustain ourselves the way we are at the moment. It's that the earth cannot provide for it, for us the way we're, well, it, it will provide for us if we respect it. It's back to that respecting, mm. you know, like mm. Aboriginal people would go out and, you know, like, harvest a plant, you know, like when the Murnongs are ready for harvesting, did they go out and dig up every bloody Murnong and eat it? Of course they <laughs> didn't. You know, it's, it's not rocket science. Yeah. And growing things where they don't belong, you know, like your cotton and even your wheat and things like that. And rice, you know, like in Australia, growing cotton and rice. Water-intensive you know, plants, yeah. yeah. Whereas, you know, like you grow kangaroo grass or wallaby grass or any of our, you know, like the original grains from Australia, they don't need water. They'll survive drought, flood, whatever. Yeah. A lot of these plants would also provide excellent fibres for clothing if we wanted to use them for that. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And they're all gluten-free. Uh, so, you know, like the only difference is is you can't reap as much product yeah. per acre as you can with genetically modified grains like wheat. Mm. Oh, well, the whole genetic modification thing is scary. I find it really scary, the genetic modification thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But again, that's a that's a massive distrust of the natural world yeah. and saying we know better, we want to do it this way. Yeah, it's that arrogance. Scientists have done a lot of good things, but scientists have also done a lot of bloody horrible things that have, you know, stuffed, up, stuffed things up right, left and centre. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I'm sort of going to have to drift off, Ellie. Well, thank you so much, though, Julie. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking. I... <laughs> Yeah. I sometimes I'll get off the phone and think, oh, Julie, you just talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Wanter, after only probably yapping with him for about an hour, he said, okay, aunt, aunt, you're, um, you're the storyteller, you're the story keeper. And he called Kath Koss, the law keeper. So, well, that's interesting because she's entering, she's going to um, yeah, run for local council, council so that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks a lot, Ali. Well, thanks, Auntie Julie. That was Auntie Julie McHale, local elder and community leader amongst the Jajarung here in Castlemaine. As mentioned earlier, if you're interested to hear more about our local First Nations community here in central Victoria, then have a listen to a series I did with Uncle Rick Nelson back in 2015. We called it Jajarung Radio and interviewed all sorts of people from the kids at the meeting place to historians and just general members of the local Aboriginal community. There were short 10-minute segments for a show on Main FM, but I've edited them together in themes and uploaded them at saltgrass.podbean.com. So jump online if you want to have a listen to that. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, 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 grassroots, 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 grassroots,
grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com.